0: You turn with me this morning to first John chapter one. First John chapter one. Titled the message today, "Confession and Forgiveness." We just made our way in the last couple of times we've observed the Lord's table through the latter part of 1 John chapter 1 and into 1 John chapter 2, first couple of verses. John says in 1 John 1, nine, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, of course, says the writer says, If we... John is implying, indicating that he is one who is confessing sins... He's drawing attention to the disciples that he's writing to, that this is something that they are to do in an ongoing way in their lives. This is, I believe, in keeping with his theme as he's announced it. We do have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How do we maintain that fellowship? We maintain that fellowship as we confess our sins and He cleanses us, forgives us. He is righteous to do so. That might seem basic, simple teaching in the Christian life. I think as you study the subject of forgiveness, as you study the subject of confession throughout the Word of God, it's wonderful to have a, a verse that Uh, speaks to that ongoing confession. But I think if you thought about it, uh, you might have some questions about the relationship between that practice and what happens when we are saved, when we're converted. And uh, as you think about the subject of confession or the subject of forgiveness and you think about the teaching of the Word of God... And as you live in this world you interact with other Christians, you know there are lots of thoughts, lots of teaching out there about those subjects. I know in the course of my Christian life I've heard messages and been helped by messages, but I've also heard things that I'm not so sure uh, what to think of. And at other times I've heard things that I know are clearly wrong that are not Good teaching consistent with the Word of God. We kind of live in a world right now that is uh, image oriented. Not only images like photos and that sort of thing, but graphics and ideas are presented in terms of a picture or, uh, you know, sometimes a quote comes across our eyes that's in a box and it's all decorated and we think, oh, that's nice. But sometimes the thoughts that are presented in those memes or those graphics are some really bad ideas about theology. And without discernment, if we're just looking at a statement and not comparing it to God's Word, we can really think wrong thoughts. We can think the world's thoughts instead of God's thoughts. I was reminded in studying for this message just how wrong those thoughts can be and how important it is to make sure that I'm testing whatever I'm reading, whether it's digital or paper, with the Bible. There's a pastor who wrote a book about the subject of forgiveness, and he gave a quiz at the beginning of it. It was a true-false quiz and asked a series of questions. One of his questions was, (coughs) true or false, most Christian pastors and counselors agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. And as he went through that quiz and answered the question and gave some insight to his readers as to what he studied and what he believed the Word of God taught, he said, it's false In reality, he said, pastors and counselors disagree profoundly about forgiveness. And then he gave this charge, or encouragement, which I thought was good, especially as it connects with uh, our church name. He said, be like the Bereans. Resolve that you're going to work out an understanding of forgiveness based on the Word of God. You don't need my opinion, he said, or anyone else's. You need to hear from God. When you work through your personal beliefs about forgiveness, be thoroughly biblical. Know where the relevant references are in the Bible. When you pick up any book on forgiveness and read it, ask yourself, does this book plainly set forth the teaching of Scripture? How much is it really interacting with the Bible? This is for sure, he says, if a book on forgiveness is going to be worth your while, it should be dripping with Scripture. Dripping with Scripture. Now, obviously, even the devil knows Scripture and can misuse Scripture, but yes, dripping with Scripture, but the Scriptures need to be rightly interpreted, and that's our challenge. We know that we need to forgive. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the forgiveness, the relationship with God that is the example for our forgiveness to one another. <coughs> as you see in 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. As that verse states it, and as in context, he's talking about our confession to God, I believe. But then we are to imitate God. That's Paul's next words there in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So how are we to imitate God? We are to imitate God by being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, just like God has forgiven us. The example for us is God. Paul says to the Colossians, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Then he says, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. That word complaint means an expression of grievance or resentment. The idea is a fault. You're finding fault with someone else. One writer said Christians are forgiven people and they should be thankful for it. That's what makes them unique. But this unique factor carries a responsibility with it because they are forgiven. they must also be forgiving, as Ephesians 4.32 says, and he quotes the verse. Within the Christian community there should be much forgiveness all the time. The Christian home, the church, and this writer who is a counselor says, and the counseling room are all prime areas for both seeking and granting Christian forgiveness. On all fronts, a Christian should be a forgiving person who never forgets how God forgave him. Or her, we could say. So we're... Kind of digging in to the subject of reconciliation. Reconciliation. God has been merciful to reconcile us to Himself by the blood of His Son. For that reason, He's worthy of our praise, honor, adoration, service. God's been so good to us. But that goodness that God has shown to us not only should motivate us to love Him more, but also to extend His love as He works in our hearts to others. We can come to an understanding of the gospel, but not live in light of the gospel in our relationships with other Christians. You understand what I'm saying? We can come to an understanding of the gospel, know that I'm forgiven of my sins, know what God has done for me, but then not apply it when it comes to my relationship with other believers. And our mind has to be renewed. I mean, we need to be told basics like, be kind to one another. Why would Paul have to say that to the Ephesians? Why does God have to tell us to love one another? Because that's how sinful we are. We need reminders like that. We need to be shown how to do it. Forgiveness is one of those ways. And then, of course, not just forgiveness, but that process of reconciliation and even just living with one another. We need to be told to bear with one another and to be long-suffering. How do we handle reconciliation with others? Well, we've experienced reconciliation to God by what He has done for us, but then we apply that as we relate to one another within the context of the church, obviously within our homes as well. Life is complex enough, and then our sin and our lack of knowledge or sometimes just the state of our heart complicates things further. And we're sometimes challenged to know how the set of circumstances that we find ourselves in by God's providence. We may not get very far even today in this subject with regard to confession and forgiveness, but I want to begin to dig deeper into reconciliation. My hope and prayer is that as we, certainly as we understand God, God's mercy towards us, that that will deepen our love for Him, but as we understand God's mercy and grace towards us, it will also affect our relationships with one another. And I'm, I'm certainly not saying even today that we understand uh, the work of Christ or what God has done as much as we ought to. But at some point, you do have to get down to those details of then how you relate to one another as Christians. You can be so focused on what God has done and not look at the practicals that you never actually apply the truth to your life. And the gospel, as it's given, has application to life. You can see that clearly in Paul's letters as he writes and gives doctrine oftentimes in the first half of his letter and then applies it in the second half or the second portion of his letter and draws attention to the truths of the gospel that then should lead towards the way that we live our life. I think what Paul was doing there in Ephesians was drawing attention to that. Why do we show kindness to one another? Why are we tender-hearted? Why do we forgive? It's because of what God has done for us in Christ. It's what he's gracious enough and merciful enough to do for us in Christ. So in light of our being his children, in light of the truth of the gospel, then there should be a movement in my life, not just towards him, but then towards others who he has saved by his grace. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the question might occur to you, if I have been cleansed, why do I need cleansing? If I've been forgiven, why do I need forgiveness? If I have been justified, what is going on with what John is saying here? And I think that's a question that some have as you look at 1 John 1.9 other places in the Word of God that teach certainly that God has done something for us in salvation that has ongoing implications. So this need for confession, as John presents it, he says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. I don't believe John is talking here about that initial cleansing and justification. He's talking about something else. And what he's talking about has been the practice of believers throughout the centuries, not just church history, but going back into the Old Testament. Praying for forgiveness or confessing sin to God, seeking forgiveness, Is it follows the example of godly Christians. We don't have time to turn to all the passages, but you could see... In the Old Testament, there is corporate confession of a nation before God. Ezra did that. Nehemiah did that. Daniel did that. Some of the prophets did that. Beyond those. But then there's personal confession. Daniel actually mixed in Daniel chapter 9 personal confession as he confessed his own sins but also the sin of the nation. Nehemiah did that as well. But perhaps the most familiar to us As far as an individual who, although he was a representative of the nation, he was dealing with personal sin, is David. David confessed his sin to God, even as he had already come to know God by faith. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. There's a number of psalms that we could turn to, but in Psalm 32, David says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man, singular, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. (coughs) We understand some of that lately. Selah, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will uh, confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And he gives encouragement to everyone who is godly. Notice he says that. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. He's not talking about his initial conversion. He's not talking about his justification. He's talking about a time in his life when he had sinned against the Lord that seems to be consistent with Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel 12, the time when David sinned against the Lord, he killed Uriah, he took Bathsheba, and he is going through a time of non-confession, and then he confessed his sin, and he saw the blessing of that. David, in Psalm 51, is asking for the same kinds of things as he prays to the Lord, and that's As you look at that, David's describing the blessing and his experience here. But if you want to see the prayer, turn over to Psalm 51. Notice his petitions in this psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And he goes on. He's making all sorts of personal petitions that God would cleanse him, forgive him, restore him, renew him. And you and I, according to the New Testament, are to speak to ourselves in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. Even this psalm, Psalm 51, should inform my heart and should teach me about how to relate to God when it comes to confession and forgiveness. Now David gets real specific in Psalm 51 as he speaks of his blood guiltiness Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now, you might come to that and say, well, I haven't ever murdered someone. David had. David had taken many lives in war, but this was a life that he took unjustly, and he knew it. It Those wars even commanded by God, but this one he had taken unjustly, and he knew that he was guilty, and he deserved death. And he's confessing that to the Lord. Deliver me from that blood guiltiness. So these psalms of confession, these psalms of, they're called penitential psalms, these psalms of repentance are to inform the hearts of God's people. Praying for forgiveness and confessing sin follows the example of godly Christians. Now we would say as someone comes to Christ, there's an initial coming to God for forgiveness. There's the God, be merciful to me, the sinner, on the part of the publican. There's that confession of faith that's combined with a repentant heart that certainly sees to get forgiveness, to receive the forgiveness of God for the sins of one's life. And so, while we would say there is This example, there also is that time when initially someone comes to God and receives forgiveness for their sins entirely. This is a wonderful truth of the gospel. Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. What does the gospel teach? The gospel teaches that we can have forgiveness for all of our sins. All of them. As Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, preached who Jesus was, what he had done, calls the people to recognize his identity as Lord and Messiah, and then they are convicted. And at the end of the portion recorded for us, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember that baptism is not necessary for salvation. The reason Peter mentions it here is that baptism was a symbol of one who followed Christ. For someone who confesses Christ, believes in Christ, it's that outward symbol that is Consistent with an inner reality, but a person does not have to be baptized in order to be saved. We know that from the thief on the cross. Obviously, in the Old Testament, they were not practicing baptism. But Peter says, Repent and each of you be baptized, assuming faith, faith in Christ, that double sided coin, faith and repentance, that's what's taking place. And then forgiveness of sins is given. Turn, if you would, over to Acts chapter 10. As the gospel is proclaimed through the book of Acts, there is the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is the death of Jesus Christ. There is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is preaching that to the household of Cornelius. He starts In verse 38, I'm not going to read all the way through everything that he said, but near the end of his message to the household of Cornelius, after preaching the good news, verse 42, it says, He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, capital O, this is Christ, this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins, plural. And that's the good news of the gospel. That your sins, all of them, past, present, future, can be forgiven through believing in Jesus in His name, in what He did upon the cross, in His resurrection. All of your sins. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, "...in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight." And he goes on. And so for the person who has come to Christ and has had their sins forgiven there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter eight and verse one. John even says in first John two twelve, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. He says to the Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians rather, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And before we move on with our subject, I'd ask you today, have you received forgiveness for your sins? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ and found forgiveness for your sins? Or are those sins still testifying against you before God? See, God's good news is that you can have your sins forgiven. The the bad news is that if you don't turn from your sins, there is a penalty for your sin. The wages of sin is death, and beyond physical death, there is eternal judgment, eternity in a lake of fire if you do not repent and turn from your sins. And so, it is a wonderful thing that God has given us the good news that our sins can be forgiven, cleansed, washed, and before God, I stand declared righteous, innocent, and not just innocent of sin, but also righteous that I've fulfilled God's demand and I'm accepted before God, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what God has done for me in Christ. That's good news. Preach that. Believe that. Don't hold that back from your neighbor. The person that you work with. This is good news, and we're to make disciples of all the nations, but that's good news to make a disciple with, that they might believe too, that they might have eternal life, and yes, the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, but that they can have their sins forgiven. The hope of heaven Fellowship with God, being a child of God, all of the riches that God has lavished on us. Why don't we share that? That's wonderful news. It's the greatest news. May the Lord help us to share the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. If I have that, and I know that past, even present, and future, all of my sins are forgiven. All of them. Why do I need to come to God and confess them? Well, John does say if we confess our sins, and it is a present tense, it's an ongoing thing. So John, who understood the gospel surely, is teaching something there that I think it's appropriate to remember that while we have been forgiven of our sins and we have been justified, that in our experience we still sin. And as we sin, we break that fellowship with God. We're not removing ourselves from being God's children. We're not taking away somehow our justification. We're not losing our salvation. You can't lose what God has done for you. He placed His spirit inside of you, He's going to be there forever. But you can, by your sin against God, certainly bring His displeasure. You can bring His discipline. You can bring His loving and kind, careful judgment. It's not eternal judgment, but it is His judgment so that you will be disciplined to learn His righteousness. Sometimes people distinguish between that judicial forgiveness or justification from what is called parental forgiveness. God's uh, forgiving us as a father, one who loves us, who has established that relationship with us and will not permit us to deviate without his discipline from the family character. God is doing something in us and he loves us enough to be persisting at it. It's like a parent who wants to see their child exhibit a certain character and disciplines and disciplines for the sake of that child becoming what they ought to be. And God's goal for you and for me is to be like Jesus Christ. And so God lovingly disciplines. I like the way the Pastors and teachers there that met at Westminster wrote, they said, God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of His countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance." And what, he, what they say there about faith and repentance, that isn't just something on the day of conversion. That is the Christian life, continued faith, continued repentance. Now, did Jesus teach this? Well, what did He teach in the Lord's Prayer? Or the disciples' prayer? I call the disciples' prayer. Because there's at least one petition that the Lord couldn't pray, but it's the one we need to, and it relates to this. Our Father in heaven, you go down through those petitions, and one of them says, Forgive us our debts. Our Father, and if you look in the context of Matthew chapter 6, it's constantly the Father who sees the one praying in secret, it's the Father who hears our prayers, who sees our fasting, whatever it may be that Jesus is teaching there in relation to God the Father, and it's in that context that he says to pray. Forgive us, and that's a daily thing, right? Give us this day our daily bread is the same prayer as forgive us our debts. It implies something about our sinfulness. It implies something about the continual need that we have to come to God and make sure that we're in right fellowship with God. Do we need to pray to God for forgiveness? Do we need to continue to do that? Yes, so that we can stay in fellowship with God. Not so that we can stay in the family of God. Of course, we're in God's family if we believed in Christ, if He is our Lord and Savior but it's to stay in fellowship with him. James is calling his readers to that when he says, James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this is a matter of fellowship. This is a matter of staying in right relationship with God when we sin against God. And He is our Father. We come back to Him. We confess our sin to Him. We forsake that sin. And God cleanses us and He purifies us. He doesn't re-justify us. That's already true. And that's never going to be removed. This is what we call sanctification. As we grow in likeness to Christ. And sometimes the way in which we grow is we we sin and we fail and we come back to God, ask for His forgiveness, we get back up again and we walk in the path and we're reminded that God is our Father, that we are His child, that we need to please Him in our lives. So I just ask you today, are you in fellowship with God? Have you received salvation by His grace? It's possible to be... Saved by His grace and been justified, but you're not in fellowship with Him because you're living in sin. As we come to the Lord's table, obviously we're coming, if we come obediently, we examine ourselves to make sure there's really nothing between us and the Lord. As the song says, nothing between my soul and the Savior. I don't know about you, but as I think about the Lord's table, there are times where I'm thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to partake of the Lord's table. Is there something, even in advance of our time together, is there something that is in my life that needs to be repented of and dealt with? And I can tell you, the light up here has seen some confession of sin. I always try to pray as I come to God's house. I pray at other times too, but when I come to God's house, I I I want to make sure that I don't stand in front of God's people not right with God. That'd be terrible. And I'd appreciate your prayers. In the life of every Christian, every day, not just when we observe the Lord's table, There ought to be confession, ongoing confession of sin. Forgive us for our debts. And if you want to know how to pray for forgiveness, of course the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray that way. But then there's the biblical examples. We turn to Psalm 32 and 51. I'm not asking you to turn there now, but I like what Spurgeon said about Psalm 51. That psalm has to the chief musician written over it. And then it describes David's sin. But David is writing that psalm as a public song to be sung. Did everybody understand what he meant when he said, deliver me from blood guiltiness? I don't know. It was public enough for Nathan to know it, for the household to know it. Joab knew it. But Spurgeon said on that psalm, he says, Therefore, that psalm is not written for private meditation only, but for the public service of song. It's suitable for the loneliness of individual penitence. That's the idea of a person who's just individually dealing with sin, wanting to repent. But he says this matchless psalm is equally well adapted for an assembly of the poor in spirit. It's for all of us. And as we go to prayer, whether we follow Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, I believe you'd find the elements in both of those psalms that you'd find in other places in the Word of God, you would find confession to God, even specific, and repentance, an acknowledgement of sin, we'll talk more about it, but also a turning from sin in the context of that prayer. Now, I'm saying those words, I'm not saying you have to use exactly those words. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 aren't the same words, and I'm not talking about even a form of words. Jesus gave us, in his teaching, in the, in the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, he gave us a pattern. He's not giving us just the words to say. I mean, he's giving us words to think about so that we'll recognize that that's the meaning and that's how we need to pray. But I don't believe every time we confess our sins that we're to use just those words. We have too much else in the Word of God that is similar in terms of prayers of confession, forgiveness, to model our prayers over simply just those few words. We can elaborate as david did in psalm 51 when i say elaborate he's he's extending and giving multiplied petitions for god to forgive him for his sin but in our prayer for forgiveness confession to god repentance before god at least expressing our heart's desire is the right way to pray for forgiveness I'm going to ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who conceals. To conceal is to hide something. It's what Jael did when Sisera came to her tent and he was trying to hide from the Israelites. We know she had other plans, but at least for a time, she covered him with a rug. She concealed him. But this is what we do when we sin And we don't confess it. We conceal it. Job says, have I covered my sins like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Now, he literally hid from God. And God, through a series of questions, is calling forth for a confession. But Adam wasn't forthcoming. He was hiding instead. How many of us hide when our heart is not right? Instead of confessing, we conceal. Instead of uncovering, we try to cover. We're pretty good at deception. Sometimes we hide it from the view of others, and only we know, or at least we think only we know, we know based on the teaching of Scripture that God knows. God always knows. There is no creature, the writer of Hebrews says, hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men, Psalm 33 says. From His dwelling place He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, He who fashions the hearts of them all, He who understands all their works, and He knows our hearts. He says to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give to every person according to the fruit of his deeds, so it doesn't matter if you've had, hidden it from people. You can't hide it from God, and God is actively searching. He sees. He knows. Not only knows what's done, He knows the intents of your heart. And sometimes that's where the sin is. It's not so much outwardly as you've got sin going on in your heart that you've not dealt with. Now, to confess instead of conceal, verse 13 says, He who con- uh, conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You will not succeed. God is is opposed to transgression. He is opposed to sin. He's going to set himself in opposition to pride and arrogance that pursues that course. But, he who confesses and forsakes, that's the confession and that's the repentance, will find compassion. Compassion from who? Compassion from God. I noticed... As I was thinking about this verse, the very next verse says, How blessed is the man who fears always, who, but, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. If you're concealing your sin and hardening your heart, there's trouble coming because God's in charge. He loves us enough to deal with us. And even the passage that we think about the Lord's table there in Corinth There were those who were not dealing with their sin, and God was dealing with them because they weren't dealing with their sin. Confession is something that we're taught many places in the Word of God. This idea of confessing sin in this verse in the Old Testament would go along with offering a sacrifice. You come, you have an animal, you confess your sins over the head of that animal, and then the knife is taken and that throat is cut and the blood is spilled as a testimony of ultimately Christ's blood being shed, but that's what confession involved. The Day of Atonement, that's what was practiced. Confession. But then there's repentance. Look at the end of the verse. He who confesses and forsakes them. Forsakes what? Forsakes the transgressions is not confessing with the thought that this ritual is going to get me in right fellowship with God without turning from that sin. Have you ever thought that? That you could confess and that's some kind of a magic trick that makes you right with God even though you don't want to turn from your sin? No, God is not looking just simply for you to tell Him what you've done. He knows what you've done. He is looking for a full repentance, which means a turning from, an abandoning, That's what the word forsake means. It's oftentimes used in the Old Testament of abandoning either God or abandoning idols for God, turning away from and turning to. Repentance is a change of mind that results, if it's genuine, in a change of life. Zacchaeus repented and his life changed. It wasn't just words that he was saying to Jesus. J.C. Ryle said, True repentance begins with the knowledge of sin, goes on to work sorrow for sin, it proceeds to produce confession of sin, it shows itself in a thorough breaking off from sin, and in the last place shows itself by producing in the heart a settled habit of deep hatred of all sin. Now, We pursue that, and God's Word, as it renews our minds, deepens our hatred. As we see the effects of our sin, it deepens the hatred that we have for sin. So just by way of application, if God makes you aware of your sin, if you're aware of enough to be concealing it, you're aware of your sin. But if He makes you aware of it, the first thing to do is not to cover it back up. It's to confess it sincerely. You may not have the sorrow that is appropriate to what you have done, but it's still right to confess and forsake it. I don't believe our sorrow is usually even appropriate for the sins that we commit against God. And you really can't work that up, except to understand the nature of the sin and what it is as it offends God. Sometimes what what helps us to see how terrible sin is, is the effects that it has on our life, or maybe the effect that it has on others. But if we remember the effect that it has on others, the, the reason that Jesus had to die on a Roman cross with his hands pierced and his feet pierced and his head pierced with a crown of thorns is because of my sin. When we see that one who was hanging on the tree in agony and blood and realize that it was my sin that nailed him there, if we have anything of a godly heart, that's going to start to work some sorrow. Don't return to your sin. Don't go back to the vomit. Proverbs twenty-six, eleven: like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You want to you wanna hit that nail in a little harder into his hand? You want to press that crown of thorns down even more? He would say, no, I'd never want to do that. Don't return to your sin. The work of Christ is finished. I'm just speaking, I hope you understand, in a figure of speech, but what Christ has done, he has done, but the the reality of what he has done ought to make us hate sin and want to turn away from it, abandon it. So as we come to the Lord's table today, I have much more to say, much more to, and we, in the Lord's grace and goodness, we have more opportunities to look at this subject, but I just want to encourage you as we come to the Lord's table today, we recognize the work of Christ and what He's done for us. Don't conceal your sin. Confess your sin. Abandon that sin. You might say, well, I've returned to it so many times. Do you ever pray, Lord, help me to never do that again? You can pray that and still return to it. Trust me. But that's the right kind of heart. Help me to never do that again. I don't ever want to do that again. Forgive us our debts. Lead me not into temptation. Lead me not into temptation says I don't want to go back there. I don't want to pursue that again. I don't want to walk in that again. I don't want to displease you again, Father. I want to remain in fellowship. And maybe that's what the Lord is doing in your heart today, even through this message, as you you say, I need to get back in fellowship with God. This This is an opportunity to do that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. We're reminded today of your love for us, Lord, in Christ. We're reminded of the grace and the goodness that you've shown to us, the mercy that you've shown to us in sending him to die on the cross for our sins. Guard us, Lord, from the foolishness of thinking that we could conceal. Help us to confess and today to forsake without the intention of ever returning. We know that we can't promise absolute and perfect obedience, Lord, but as you deepen our desire in our heart to obey you, we pray that we might pray for sanctification, that you would change us and purify us and cleanse us. It stands to reason that David would have prayed for that clean heart and that restoration that he might never again Jeopardize himself, his family, his children, his throne, his nation by sinning again. Give us grace, Lord. Even in this hour, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name.